Last week I made reference to a song uh, by a Simon and Garfunkel song. You might remember, you might not, that doesn't matter. And I want to start by reading to you the lyrics of that song. Uh, now, if you don't know who Simon and Garfunkel is, then you need a musical education. Um, they are brilliant. Um, they're songwriters, poets. Their songs are some of the songs of my childhood etched in my memory. Uh, from the countless times my mum and dad would play the vinyl records as I was going to sleep. It was a wonderful, wonderful memory. Have a listen to the wonderful poetry of this song, I Am A Rock. On winter's day, in a dark and deep December, I'm alone, gazing from my window to the streets below on a freshly fallen, silent shroud of snow. I'm a rock. I'm an island. I've built walls, a fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. Don't talk of love. I've heard the word before. It's sleeping in my memory. I won't disturb the slumber of feelings that have died. If I never loved, I never would have cried. I have my books and my poetry to protect me. I'm shielded in my armour, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one and no one touches me. I am a rock. I am an island. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. Beautiful poetry, isn't it? It's just so wonderfully written, so cleverly written. But it's just so wrong, isn't it? It's actually not right. Well, I suspect these words were penned in the light of a breakup, uh, you know, that deep sorrow of relationship torn, and I suspect all of us can relate to that at different times in our life, the sorrow of relationship broken, and sometimes we might feel like the words of that song. To be alone, to be an island, to not risk the hurt, the pain and the tears is good, but we're not rocks, we're not islands. That's not how we were made. We were made for a relationship. We saw that idea last week. It was introduced to us in Genesis 1. And this week we'll focus on it as we look at Genesis 2. That we were made for a relationship. The power of together. I want today to encourage us to do this hard work of relationship. And it is hard work. I want to remind us of the power of relationships and how God has made us relational people and what it means to live as his children in this world in the way that we live with others. Genesis 1 and 2, they're such masterful chapters of God's word as they introduce us to the key actors in the play, if you want to put it like that. Epic beginnings that set the pieces in place for the unfolding drama of the Bible that will take us through 66 books. If Genesis 1 and 2 were made into a movie, then Genesis 1 would be the wide-angle panorama shot, wouldn't it? That's what it would be. The wide-angle lens looking at all the diversity and wonder of all that God has made creating the heavens and the earth. But as we enter the drama again, as we opened up at Genesis 2 verse 4, the director has hit the rewind button. He's actually taken us back. He's taken us back to before the creation of mankind. But he hasn't just hit the rewind button, he's actually changed the lens on the camera from the panorama to the zoom lens. And this time he's going to focus in, in particular, on the creation of the man and the woman, the creation of Adam and Eve. And as it does this, as it focuses on that event in particular, there's differences that come out in the account. You know, looking back at chapter 1, the picture of the world that's painted for us in chapter 1 that God creates is a world full of life and bursting with life all around. 
you know, tr- uh, seed-bearing plants and fruit-bearing trees abounding all over, water just teeming with all sorts of sea creatures and birds flying in flocks above and, and animals crawling, creeping, walking, abounding on the land. And it's into this abundant world of life that God creates Adam and Eve as rulers under him. But in chapter 2, the picture is quite different, isn't it? I hope, like, did you notice that as we read through it? In verse 5, there's no shrubs, there's no trees yet. There's no greener on the earth, and it's at that point that we see the creation of Adam, of man, first. Adam alone, made personally, wonderfully, intimately by the hand of God, formed like like God's a master clay builder out of the dust of the earth. And this intimate portrayal of the creation of Adam continues as, as God breathes life, breathes air into his airwaves. And Adam opens up his eyes and sees his creator. It's a beautifully intimate and powerful picture, isn't it, that he's painted here. And the world where Adam is made is portrayed like a dust bowl. It's portrayed like a mud pit, you know, moistened by mist and unpopulated by animals. Not fit for life yet. Unfit for people. Waiting, waiting for mankind to come and so that it would be what God made it to be. But set apart from this ball of mud or this dust bowl, if you want to put it like that, God has planted a garden, separate, the Garden of Eden. In chapter 1, it was almost like the whole of the world was like the Garden of Eden, a paradise. But in chapter 2, it's different. Eden, this garden, is a paradise made for man to dwell with God, for fit for flourishing and fit for life. And it's into this garden that God, after taking and making Adam, takes him and puts him in the garden in this garden of life. Now last week we saw, we we explored the purpose that God made Adam and Eve for. They were given a purpose by God to fill the earth and subdue, to rule the world under him, to make the world what he had created it to be. In in a sense, Genesis 1 was an unfinished project. Very good, yes, but unfinished. And Adam and Eve's role was to make the world what God made it to be. And so the the world of Genesis 1 was incomplete and unfinished. And this picture is painted even more powerfully for us in chapter 2, isn't it? It's as if Adam's role under God, as he looked through chapter 2, is to extend the borders of the garden, if you want to put it like that, is to make the whole world like the garden, fit for life, cultivated, teeming with life, and with people ruling, caring, loving, serving God together. That's their task. That's their purpose. And so God puts Adam in the garden with him. And then then he gives Adam his good command, his good word. You know, the garden's rustling with trees, laden with wonderful food. All that he needs for life is there. But verse 17, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And so God is entrusting Adam with this command. And the command is clear. But at the the risk of sounding a bit irreverent, have you ever thought that this punishment just seems a little bit over the top? You know, God God puts this tempting tree in the middle of the garden. We know from chapter 3 it looks good, the fruit looks great, pleasing to the eye, good for food. But if Adam eats from this tree, then he'll die. No second chances, no, you know, don't do that again. No, sit in a naughty corner for a few minutes and we'll talk about what you did. Just don't do that again. It's none of that. It's just when you eat it, you will die. It just sounds a little bit tough, doesn't it? 
but it's not over the top. It's not tough. In fact, it's right and appropriate. You see, the life that Adam has was given to him by God. It was breathed into him by God himself. And so God has the right to take it away. If Adam wants to deny the authority of God over him and reject God's place in his life, then God is right to take the life that he has given away. It's a gift. He didn't earn it. He gave it. He can take it. It's a right and appropriate thing, but we'll see more of that next week. But then into this idyllic picture of life in the garden, God says something in verse 18 that just is a, really a bit shocking if you've been reading through from chapter 1. After everything in God's creation, chapter 1 is good, is good, and then you get to the end and it is very good. Verse 18, God says something's not good. It's not good. What is it that's not good? It's not good that Adam is alone. And I want us to appreciate the magnitude of what this means. Think think of everything that Adam has. Adam has all these trees to eat from, all this wonderful food in abundance. He can can eat all he wants from the tree of life. He has what would come to be called man's best friend. Not that I think he is, although I like dogs. He has productive work to do. He's given purpose by God. And above all that, he has a face-to-face living relationship with his God who gave him life. He has all that, all right? But he's still alone. He's still incomplete. God alone is not enough for Adam. Don't you think that's profound? God alone is not enough for Adam. We were made for more for more than just a relationship with God. We were made for a relationship with God together with others. That's what we were made for. And without that, we are all incomplete. But what does it mean that Adam is alone? What, what precisely is the issue with aloneness that we see in this passage? Well, in the passage, there's two problems that the aloneness of Adam presents for us. For Adam in particular. Adam, firstly, Adam can't fulfil his role to fill the earth and rule it under God. He can't do that on his own. We saw that in the gift talk, didn't we? The task is too big. It's actually impossible for him to do it. He's unable to fulfil his role that he's been given by God as his image bearer, as his steward of the world, making the world all it was created to be. Yes, that includes having children and multiplying. You can't do that, obviously, but it's so much more than that as well. To fulfil our role as stewards of all that God has made, we can only do it in relationship with others. We need another. We need others. Secondly, Adam's aloneness is not just about his purpose, his task. It's actually also about relationship. He's truly alone. He needs relationships with others. He was made for relationship with others. In verses 19 to 20, we get this... Beautiful portrayal of God bringing all these animals to Adam. It's like a scene out of Dr. Doolittle, isn't it? And he names them all. So it's a beautiful, intimate picture, but, but there's also a loneliness in that picture because he is alone and he feels it. They might be able to help him cultivate the garden, but they are not like him. They don't compliment him. They don't answer his aloneness. He's made for relationship with someone like him, but he lacks it. And so God's answer to this problem is to create a helper suitable. He creates woman, someone like him, an image bearer, in exactly the same way that he is an image bearer of the living God. 
entrusted by God with the same task, together to be God's rulers in this world. To make this world all that God created it to be, to multiply, to fill the earth, to rule, together. To make this creation rich, a place rich in relationships with countless people, in wonderful trust relationship with God and with each other, ruling the world together under God, that's their task together. And once again, as God makes the woman, it's again so powerfully intimate, isn't it? In the same way it was with Adam, but slightly different. He's, so what does, what does God do? He plays the role of anaesthetist and he puts this guy to sleep and then he plays the role of surgeon and takes the rib out and closes that place with flesh and heals him. And then he, then he forms from the rib this woman. And like Adam, he does so with such intimacy and care and love, doesn't he? It's a wonderful picture in much the same way as Adam. Man and woman, equally in the image of God, man and woman in relationship, tasked with fulfilling God's work in this world as image bearers of God, one man, one woman, in profound and deep and trusting relationship with each other in this lifelong bond trust of marriage. That's what we have at the end of chapter 2, isn't it? Now, marriage isn't the only relationship on view in these verses, I don't think. I'll come to that in a minute. But But before we get there, I just want to talk about the role of marriage and its place in God's plans and purposes in this world because marriage begins in this chapter. So let's explore that for a little bit. Now, the woman is made to be a marriage mate for the man and the man is a marriage mate for the woman. They are there for each other's aloneness. Together they answer God's... There's God's solution for their aloneness, for both of them. And in these verses we see that marriage is the most profound of human relationships. They were once one flesh, and in marriage they become one flesh again. And this is speaking of more than just physical intimacy. They are one flesh in that as one person they fulfil one purpose together. They fulfil God's work in this world together, in life together. They're united in purpose and in relationship and in joy. And the physical aspect of that relationship is a wonderful and appropriate picture of that, expression of that one fleshness, which is more than just the physical. And it's through this relationship that God has ordained to be the way that children are brought up in this world and brought into the world and nurtured. The man and the woman working together as father and mother This wonderful and powerful partnership of parenthood, child-rearing, child-raising, filling the earth, fulfilling God's purposes for it, but also working together in so many other ways, equal but different, complementing each other in in God's work in this world in so many other ways as well. It's a wonderful and powerful picture. And then the final verse of this chapter paints a picture of the beautiful trust relationship between this first man and this first woman. The first married couple, deep in trust, Nothing's hidden. There's no brokenness, just powerful, dynamic unity and trust in one another so that they can work together for powerful good as God's image bearers together. It's a great picture, isn't it? Now we need to remember that this is all before sin comes into the world and fractures this picture of profound unity and relationship. But before we do that, before we get to that and think about the impact of sin in all this, we need to recognise that what God is creating as an answer to aloneness is not just marriage, but actually a whole community of relationships that will come out of this. That's also what he's creating. From this marriage will come the relationships of 
parents, with children and siblings one to another and wider family relationships of, of uncles and aunts and cousins and then wider again in terms of you know, workmates and neighbours and friends and all of them are part of a community of people that are also part of God's answer to our aloneness. All of these relationships share the powerful other person-centred dynamics of trust and care and, and mutual joy and difference that brings richness and, and unity and diversity, the power of working together to do things that we cannot do on our own. It's all there, isn't it? It's all part of God's answer to our aloneness, that together we might fulfil God's purpose for this world as image-bearers together of our great God. Marriage is a key building block of the community God is creating at this moment when he makes Eve. God designed community to work with marriage as a key relational structure for the raising up and bringing and nurture of children. And so to build a society that denies that or undermines that key building block is a society that will not help humanity to flourish at all. But it's not the only relational structure that God is creating at this point as he creates community. And it's important to recognise that in all of our relationships, we are all a part of God's answer to the aloneness of one another. It's really important to see that. But as we wrestle with what this passage says about marriage and the longings God has made us with, we also need to remember that the world of Genesis 2 is not our world, is it? Sorry for the spoiler again, but when we turn to the next page, we see it all unravelled, don't we? And God's answer to aloneness just be, is, is just hard work. In the mess of sin and distrust and hurt and grief and death and blame, what God created as the answer to our aloneness is broken. And all relationships, as, as rich as they can be, as powerful as they can be, then become a source of deep pain and sorrow and hurt and ragged, ugly grief through misunderstanding and carelessness and abuse and hatred and indifference. And the closer the relationship is, the deeper the cut is too. And we all have felt that, haven't we? That tragic, terrible brokenness in relationships. And so in the face of this, we can begin to feel like the lyrics of Simon and Garfunkel are right. That it's better to be a rock. That it's better to be an island that we have no need of friendship because friendship causes pain and if we never love, we never cry. But it's still not true, is it? That's not true. Simon and Garfunkel are still wrong. We do have a need of friendship. That's why when it breaks down, it hurts so much. We were made for a relationship and without it, things are not good. But because of our sin, there is a sense in which I think we're all alone. We're all alone. We've all gone back to the not good. God made us for relationships so that we would not be alone, so that together we would work for the, as, as mutual image bearers to rule this world and make it all that God created it to be, but all of that has been fractured. Like chapter 1, we're meant to read chapter 2 and see what we've lost, what we long for, what we only see glimpses of. Genesis 2 is not our world. We were created for a relationship in the image of God to relate other persons centeredly, but we've all turned it around so that we don't relate like God does and the way he relates with us and within himself. We relate for our own needs to be met. And so I 
I, I relate in, so that I might feel loved, so that I might feel wanted, so that I might be honoured and respected, and I want to use others and deceive others and hurt others to make sure I get what I need, get what I want. And we wonder why it doesn't work. And we all do it. We all hurt others. We all fail relationally. And as we read through the rest of the Old Testament and into the New, we see what a terrible job we've done with what God has entrusted us with. And it's terrible. And we're all guilty. And we're all a part of it. And in the face of this mess that we've made with all that we've been entrusted with by God, we can now see and appreciate even more the wonder uh, uh, the wonder of an aspect of what God has done for us in Jesus, the power of reconciliation, so key to what he does for us in Jesus, the joy of relationship restored. Turn with me to the passage that we just read, Ephesians chapter 2. Um, I'm going to read again from verse 14 in the light of what we've just been thinking about. Ephesians 2 verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus entered into the mess that we made you know, of our relationships. He himself suffered the worst that we could throw at him as our creator. He was misunderstood, he was abused, he was rejected, hated, tortured, spat on, abandoned, died alone. But in that death he won forgiveness. He actually made reconciliation possible. As we see in this passage from Ephesians, this begins with our reconciliation with our great God. But it includes then reconciliation with one another in this passage, doesn't it? It's both of them there. Now, if you're here today and you don't yet trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to. I want to. It's, it's just so good that you're here. This is a great place to continue to seek to get your questions answered and explore those questions with other people who are keen to find out more about God. I want us all to see that we are created relational to the very core of our being, because and that's not a mistake. That's not an accident. That's actually by design, because that's what God is like. That's how he's made us, in his image. You're created like God, created for relationship with him and with others. And the most important way that you can be all that God made you to be is to accept God's offer of relationship, his hand of friendship, his offer of being your father again. You know, there's no better feeling, I think, in life than when there's a relationship that's broken that is once again restored and brought together. That's such a powerful thing, isn't it? When forgiveness happens, when hurts are shared, fault admitted, relationship made right, wow, that's a powerful thing, isn't it? It's such a wonderful thing to experience. Jesus died to make that your experience with him, with God, with your Father, so that you could be forgiven. And in him, God holds out his hand out to you and, and asks you to accept his offer of friendship. That he would be your father and Jesus your brother. Will you accept it? This offer of reconciliation. Will you recognise the brokenness of your relationship with God, the way that you've treated him, and see what God has done to make it right? He's done it all for you. You simply need to repent and put your trust in Jesus. It's so, so wonderfully simple, but so powerful.
But the peace he means of the cross isn't just between us and God, is it? It's in this passage of Ephesians 2, it's between Jew and Gentile, between enemies. And it's not just Jew and Gentile. He brings reconciliation between humanity that we see in this passage. The cross has the power to break down barriers, to bring reconciliation between us. We all know the power of sin in relationships, don't we? Of the hurt and the isolation. But in Jesus, we see the power of relationships brought together, made right. At the cross, we see what it is to love what it is to serve, what it is to be patient, what it is to care, what it is to be kind, considerate, trustworthy, sacrificial. At the cross, we see relationships restored. It's a pattern of the way that we need to relate one with another. But it's more than that. It's also the power of reconciliation itself. Because that's what his death achieves for us. But then from there, we can then forgive and love others in the same way that he loves us. And so because of Christ, we can once again fulfil our roles as men and women created in the image of God, created to be an answer to one another's aloneness, created to relate significantly and deeply with others in marriage and in family and friends, with workmates, neighbours, and the whole gamut, the whole endless variety of relationships we are enmeshed in, in our society. We can be, we should be, we're called to be an answer to the aloneness of those around us. And so live out the pattern of relationships God has won for us in the cross. So let me ask you this. Who can you be a part of God's answer to the aloneness of someone else for this week? How can you do that for someone? How can you be a part of that for someone? How can you live out who God made you to be and saved you to be in relationship with others? Who might you need to work at reconciling with? Who might you need to say sorry to? Or offer forgiveness to? Reach out to? Who might you need to work harder at a relationship with? Who should you spend time listening with? Who can you care for this week as a part of God's answer to aloneness? As I've been thinking about those questions, maybe some names have come up in your head, if that's the case. Write them down if you're taking notes. Mark them in your head if you're not. And then do something about it this week. It's a powerful thing. But we also see in Ephesians the power of together in our roles as image bearers in the world that we would make it part of what God created it and saved it to be. Together as the body of Christ, united. We see it in Ephesians in that passage in front of you. United in him, his church, his temple, built together as co-workers with God and with one another, working together for the glory of God. Have a look at this passage on the screen from Philippians chapter 1. It says, it paints a wonderful picture that Paul paints here of God's reconciled people fulfilling God's work together. There it is. Lovely. Philippians chapter 1. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Isn't that a great last phrase? Striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. It's a beautiful picture, a powerful picture of our role in this world as God's saved people. So who are you striving together with as one person for the faith of the gospel? Now, you can do that in growth groups. You can do that in ministry in kids' church, as people are doing right now, standing as one person for the faith of the gospel with our kids. You can do that in, uh, in youth group, in adrenalites, in scripture, you know, after church. You can do it over a coffee with people. Help keep each other accountable, praying for one another. The power of together to work together as image bearers in this world to be part of making this world what God created and saved it to be. 
So if you're taking notes, once again, what's one thing that you can do this week to strive together with others for the faith of the gospel? It might be connected with the other two names you put in. might not be. That's all right. What's one thing you can do to strive as one person for the faith of the gospel? Because that too is part of God's answer to the aloneness problem that we see in Genesis 2 as we live God's purposes out together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonder of what you've done in your son. We thank you that you have created us as people who long for relationship. And we thank you that you've created us as an answer to the aloneness of those around us. Thank you that you saved us in Christ. Thank you that you offer that offer uh, that wonderful gift of reconciliation. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for the times when we don't relate the way that we should, when we turn relationships on its head and made it all about us. Father, help us instead to serve you, help us to love others, but help us also to be a church that stands as one person for the faith of the gospel. And as we do that, we pray that more and more people would hear the wonder of what you've done and be built up in their knowledge and love of you, that you would continue to work through us to make this world what you created and what you saved it to be. Amen.